Welcome to Prophecy Today. This is Jimmy DeYoung Jr., and it's great to have you with us. You know, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. As a matter of fact, that's the banner over our website, and we spend time doing that, and we take the time to examine, look at world events as they're taking place around the world. We do our top 10 news stories. We'll put them up on the uh, on our website for you. You know, everyone has a worldview, and it's so important. That's the way in which we see and understand the events that are in our world today. Some of us use Fox News, some CNN, some Sky News, some other news sources from around the world. In order to really understand what's taking place from a biblical point of view, you must have a biblical worldview. And that's why we take a look at the events and help you to understand how they fit into God's perfect program for what he has in place, not only from the past, the present, and the future. And that's what we do here on our Prophecy Today weekend and our ministry of Prophecy Today. Now, I know you're probably asking, why is Jimmy Jr. on the radio today? And some of you already know the uh, what is taking place. My father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who has done this program for 21 years, every week for 21 years, uh, he contracted COVID, and he's in the hospital in intensive care. We ask your prayers. He is holding steady. Um, he's He's got good care. Uh, the doctors at the hospital are taking care of him. He just needs to be patient, and he's going through that process. So we would ask that people, um, as you're following our ministry, either through the social media, through our uh, radio program for from our Internet uh, radio programs and things like that, that you would just keep him in your prayers. Now, as we always do, one of the first programs, I mean, there, we have six broadcast partners that we talk to every week, and our first one is Ken Timmerman. I know, Ken, uh, you, well, first of all, Ken, are you back in the United States? I have just returned back to the U.S., Jimmy. Thank you for asking, and uh, I tell you, we've been praying uh, earnestly for your father's quick recovery uh, God has his plan for him. And I, I just hope, uh, you know, I'm sure it involves him getting back on these airwaves and continuing his fruitful life. <laughs> exactly right. You know, and we've heard so many stories of people being in for two or three weeks and then coming back out and they're right. fine again. Yes, sir. You're absolutely right, Ken. Thank you so much. And I will pass that on to him. And, but, you know, over the years, and not a lot of people know this, but I have been involved in producing the program uh, behind the scenes, working, uh, doing the editing. For about the past six or seven years, I've been working with Dad uh, from a remote location. We work together, edit all of our, our broadcast partners and put it all together and make sure it gets out to the stations. And, uh, you know, uh, when I was in Israel, uh, and I took over from my father and working and teaching in, in the land of, of the Bible as on our trips. And now, getting into this role and and I, there's no way that I can fill his shoes and everyone knows that I know that but as I was thinking about putting and stepping into this role I was thinking about what role uh, each one of you men have had in his life and I thought you know what about when was the first time that they met my father Ken when was the first time you met my father well, this is going to be a shocker for you, Jimmy, but uh, I had been on the show with him for many years, at least 10 years, I think, without ever having 
met him face to face. You know, we had we had talked together once a week, and sometimes more frequently than that. But it was only recently, about two years ago, when your dad and mom came to um, I think it was Daytona Beach. It was nearby Daytona Beach, Florida, which is uh, uh, about uh, an hour and a half south of where I live, uh, up near Jacksonville. And uh, when I realized he was going to be there. Uh, for you know, teaching uh, in a in a local church that Sunday, I said, "Hey, we've got to get together. We haven't ever met each other face to face." So we took the opportunity. We met halfway uh, be- between. We found a great restaurant uh, and had a wonderful, wonderful lunch together. Your dad and Judy and I and my wife Christina, uh, and it was really a blessing. We we felt that we had known each other forever, which we have. But yes. it was our first face-to-face sit down and the first time we'd ever broken bread together. That is great. Thank you, Ken. And and I will pass on your well wishes to my father uh, in his situation, and I'm sure he'll be listening to this program. Uh, Ken, we, we've got to get to the stories. And uh, one of the stories that has uh, really just come off the pages is Iran's new president meeting with Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, and jihadis from Iraq. Uh, that is troubling, isn't it? <laughs> well, it, it sure is, but I should say it's not new. Every Iranian president has met with these terrorist groups and the heads of these terrorist groups for since the beginning of the Islamic regime of uh, 41 years ago. So, But Raisi hosted these leaders at his inauguration, and not only did he host them to attend the inauguration, he actually sat them in the you know choice, uh, the, the pride of, of place, uh, ahead of the European Union, ahead of the Russians, ahead of the Chinese, and other allies of the Iranians. So what he was saying, I think the message was crystal clear, we terrorists hang together. And let's not be mistaken about this. Raisi, the new president of the Iranian regime, is a terrorist. No doubt about that. You know, it's, it's amazing when you just read off the names of the characters and the countries that were there. It's interesting that the European Union sent a representative to the inauguration. Uh, absolutely. And uh, the, remember, the European Union does not consider the Iranian regime to be an enemy the way the United States does. Uh, they believe, uh, driven by commercial contacts, that they can do good business with uh, the Iranian regime, regardless of um, uh, its behavior, regardless of its relentless uh, attacks on dissidents, both at home, inside Iran, and in Europe, and now, just recently, inside the States as well, where you have these kidnapping plots run by the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, and in some cases by their cyber networks. And I know we're going to talk about that in a second, but Iran's cyber networks are extensive. They're uh, aggressive. Uh, they are um, going after dissidents. They are uh, uh, trying to infiltrate Israeli defense organizations. They're trying to infiltrate the United States banks in this country. They, there was a cyber attack about three or four years ago that was revealed by the U.S. government, conducted by the Iranians, against a uh, U.S. power plant and a dam and a water supply. Mm. So the Iranians are extremely aggressive with using cyber, uh, and to them, it is a tool of war. Ken, I've been focusing this last week in our top 10 news stories on a situation in in Afghanistan with the Taliban and what's taking place there. And, of course, uh, news headlines today are that uh, how fast and and our embassy and 
uh, has been overrun by the Taliban. Uh, uh, Afghanis are going, are migrating to Europe almost in the numbers of three to four million are trying to get into Europe, getting out of there. I need to focus on Russia's involvement on the Afghan border and what's taking place. Well, here's what's interesting is that the Russians, uh, for after many, many years of encouraging the Taliban, because they knew that the Taliban was attacking the United States, now they've recognized with the Taliban coming back to power uh, that they, too, will be a target. So this past week, they conducted military exercises in the desert along Afghanistan's border with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, two former Soviet republics. And it was a pretty large exercise. I mean, there were, there were a couple thousand Russian troops and several thousand from each of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, live firings across the desert, tanks going across the desert. And, you, know, you, you should see a Soviet tank. These were Soviet-era tanks uh, going about 35, 40 miles an hour in the, in the desert. It kicks up a dust storm like you can't believe. So the Russians are worried. They're worried that the Taliban, once they come into power, uh, take Kabul and all the rest of the country will then become aggressive towards Afghanistan's neighbors. You know, the thing that, that uh, I'm interested in, and I'm interested in what, what you think about this, the Afghan situation, Afghanistan and that situation with the Taliban. Should we be concerned about that? <laughs> you, you bet we should be concerned about it. And, and I've, I've got a piece that will be in the New York Post uh, uh, tomorrow, Sunday, uh, about this. Um, you know, President Biden... Uh, when he announced this withdrawal of U.S. troops, first of all, you know, he gave a date, which is a real bad idea, because it tells your enemy they can just lay low until that date takes place. And then he accelerated the timeline, so the Taliban, and that prompted the Taliban to take all of these, uh, cap- these regional capitals around the city and today to put Kabul itself uh, in their gun sites. Uh, and it's, it's, very, it's very rare, Jimmy, that the folly of a political decision, of a foreign policy decision, is, um, it, it, it is proved by reality. Mm-hmm. But here we have reality has interceded, and now the Pentagon just this week said, well, uh, okay, we're going to withdraw those 2,500 troops, but before we do that, we have to send 3,000 more mm-hmm. into Afghanistan. Well, we're just one of many in a long line of countries that have suffered defeat in Afghanistan. Hey, quickly... We need to touch on the Chinese cyber spies posed as Iranians while targeting the Israeli government. What do you know about that? Fascinating story. Uh, uh, Very rare to see this uh, cyber impersonation, a false flag operation. But it looks like it was a Chinese group, possibly a Chinese government group, that was trying to penetrate Israeli um, defense, economic, and uh, security uh, organizations Mm. and, and leaving Farsi language code in uh, their hacker tools and using hacker tools known to be used by Iranian groups. Uh, why did they do this? Well, maybe just to you know cover their tracks, but they were found out uh, because they're, they, they didn't do it too, too skillfully. But it's very interesting for China to use the Iranians as a cover. Mm. We are looking at all the major players, folks, that are aligning, that are in play today as far as we look at Bible prophecy and how it unfolds. Ken Timmerman, (laughs) thank you, brother, for being a part of our program. I will pass on your well wishes to my father. Thank you, and we'll look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much, Jimmy, and God bless him. Uh, hope Hope he gets well soon. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. David Dolan, our Mideast correspondent, is coming to talk with us. We look forward to that conversation. 
in just a few moments right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and as I said in our first segment, I'm here today because Dad's in the hospital, and he's doing well. He's recovering. But we do welcome your prayers and your well wishes, and the prayer that we ask for is for guidance from God and wisdom in dealing with this situation, and, and really patience for my father. Well, we examine the world events, and as they're unfolding before us, one of the countries, probably the main country that we keep our eyes on is the nation of Israel and our longtime friend and journalist there for over 30 years, Dave Dolan. Dave, it's great to have you with us here today. Well, Jimmy Jr., it's good to be with you. I'm sorry about the circumstances, but uh, you are, I'm sure, doing a great job, and it's, uh, it's a blessing for Jimmy to have a son Name Chimmy that can uh, do the program as well. <laughs> it works well. And I actually got my doctorate, so I'm a Dr. Jimmy DeYoung also. But, you know, Dave, for you and I, we've almost come full circle. We first met in 1984 when we were both living in Jerusalem. I was uh, working for a radio station out of New York City. You were working for CBS. Um, but for you and I, this is full circle. But tell me about the first time that you met my father. Well, it was not long after I met you. Um, he was over in Israel, and I don't remember exactly what year, but um, I was at the government press office. You were there many times. Morty Delinsky was heading it, and that was in central Jerusalem. And he came in, and uh, somebody mentioned his name, and I said, oh, I know his son. <laughs> and so, of course, I introduced myself, and we chatted, 
And then, uh, you know, a few years later, uh, we were both on Moody Radio Primetime America program. Uh, he was usually on Fridays being interviewed about what was going mm-hmm. on in Israel, and I would come on Mondays. And um, he invited me in the uh, uh, 90s to, uh, you know, do regular reports for, for Prophecy Today, which I've been doing, wow, that's a long time. And gosh, it's 30 years since you and I met almost. It oh, is. That's, uh, really a long time. And uh, and then I really got to know him well when he invited me to accompany his tour group. You may have been there, too. I think you yes. were, to yes. uh, Jordan. Of course, every year he would uh, include usually uh, Petra and uh, Amman. And we were supposed to go to Amman, but Yasser Arafat had just died. <laughs> and so there was trouble, and we did go to Petra. That. But on the way back in the bus, Arafat's body was being brought into Jordan from Ramallah uh, to be buried. Uh, you know, uh, I think they went up to Paris somewhere, mm-hmm. and uh, we had to wait there an hour or so while all the security was going on, and uh, we got chatting about, you know, the whole thing. But during the trip, of course, we we ate meals together and got to know him much, much better. And uh, he's a great guy, and I. I'm praying for his recovery, as I'm sure all of your listeners will be doing, and uh, want to see him back uh, back up and running. He certainly has a lot of energy and a great guy, and uh, it's been a blessing to know him and you and your sister and your mother all these years, and to be able to report uh, on what's going on in Israel through this channel. Thank you, David. And I will pass on the well wishes. I'm sure he's listening to the program. And, and let's get focused on what we're talking about. And recently in Israel, this last week, we've had the recent Israeli-Lebanon escalation shows Iran and Hezbollah are interlinked. An attack against one is seen as an attack against uh, the other or both of them at the same time. What's your, what's your take on this? Well, you know, Jimmy, I was in uh, South Lebanon in 1982 when Hezbollah was formed. It was clear to all of us that it was an Iranian puppet force uh, from the start. Shiite Muslims, the Iranians were immediately commenting on it, and they were sending money and weapons within just weeks of the announcement of the formation of Hezbollah. And uh, that relationship is very, very deep. And uh, Israeli analysts certainly believe that Hezbollah wouldn't have fired 19 rockets uh, into Israel had uh, Iran not been involved in that, that that was cleared with Iran because if Israel had responded in a stronger way and Hezbollah had gone to a full war with Israel, and that could have happened, then Iran's uh, presence, its aid, would have been essential. And that all started earlier that week on Tuesday when three Three rockets landed near the town of Kiryat Shmona, where I lived for two years mm-hmm. when I worked at the Voice of Hope in northern Israel, South Lebanon. And uh, they one landed right outside the city limits. Israel responded with artillery on an open field, though, not at any actual Hezbollah targets. A day later, and then Hezbollah said, oh, you can't do that, and they fired these rockets in. And Israel took 10 of them out with the Iron Dome system. Uh, Six of them, they determined, were going to land in open areas, so they didn't bother because it costs a lot of money every time they fire one of their Iron Dome interception rockets. And three landed inside of Lebanon. But the Israelis took this very, very seriously. It was the uh, biggest barrage since the 2006 Lebanon War. And, um, uh, you know, so it was a major, major move on their part. Uh, The IDF said that they also, Hezbollah, 
didn't aim them particularly at civilian areas, but at more open areas. So they responded again, this time with Israeli jets, the Air Force jets, but they hit open targets as well. So a real serious situation there. It really is. And when you see the proxies of Iran doing its dirty work, I mean, we know basically it's uh, the address for all of this isn't really the Gaza Strip, but Iran fantasizes that it has Israel on the run. Is that the case? Oh, they made all sorts of statements afterwards that the Israelis, the fact that they didn't hit Hezbollah positions per se in response shows that how weak they are and how afraid uh, of Iran they are. But that's just nonsense, Jimmy. The idea of a very powerful force, they restrained themselves considerably there. And you mentioned Gaza. Uh, the three rockets that were first fired were from a Palestinian group. The Israelis said immediately they knew who had done it. Mm-hmm. That is very closely linked with Hamas. So, yes, they see that Hamas realizes that if it fires anything out of the Gaza Strip, the new Bennett government is going to respond very strongly. Not that the previous government didn't, but uh, they've said even with these incendiary devices coming across the border from Gaza that the Israelis will respond to each and every one of them. So that's a new policy. So the analysts are saying the uh, Hamas movement is moving its operations out of Lebanon now, like the PLO. We mentioned Yasser Arafat. The PLO was firing rockets into northern Israel when I first uh, was up in the Galilee region in 1980. So uh, they feel they can get away with more coming out of Lebanon because next to Hamas's forces there is Hezbollah. And they, of course, have 150,000 rockets, precision-guided missiles, a much larger force than Hamas has. They have a huge fighting force. They're all along the border. And, of course, they have forces in the past few years in Syria as well, along the Golan Heights. So basically, Hamas is in three locations around Israel's border. Hezbollah's in two of them, because they also have (laughs) fighters still in Syria, as Mm -hmm. well as in Lebanon. And then Iran's proxy forces in Iraq are within rocket range, and Yemen are in uh, drone range, and of course Iran itself with its ballistic program. But no, Israel's not... Uh, weak and not a fantasy. The Iranians are dreaming when they say that. And if they pull the trigger in a big way, Jimmy, they are going to find out what Israel has in response, and it won't be pretty. That is for sure. We understand Bible prophecy as as it's uh, getting ready to unfold as we are watching this. Well, one last story. I I know that you've been a part of the media for a long time. Uh, You worked uh, for CBS. You've worked for many outlets around the world. You still, I mean, you're still involved even with us. Why do you think that the media ignore the only true democracy in the Middle East? Well, I think it's just because the uh, Palestinian cause is a popular one and the idea that uh, they're being oppressed uh, appeals to the left-wing media, and not that there isn't some of that going on, but the Israelis just announced that they're going to build some new homes in Judea and Samaria and Area C that they control, Uh, but they also said that up to a thousand Palestinian homes would be allowed as well to go up. So, you know, they're trying their best to balance both sides, but the media just likes the underdog, and in this case, the perceived underdog is the Palestinians, whereas in reality, 
it's tiny Israel that's surrounded by 350 million Muslims just in the Middle East area alone, and uh, stretching over to Afghanistan, which is falling apart, and, and into Egypt. So that's just the way the media leans to the left, and Israel is not a darling cause of theirs. David, as we look at Bible prophecy and seeing how it's unfold, uh, we do know that we need to focus on God's program for the Jewish people, don't we? We definitely do, and he said that uh, they would be exiled if they sinned against him. They were exiled twice, as Isaiah prophesied. They've returned now for a second time, as he prophesied as well, and others. They're in the mountains of Judea and Samaria, as Ezekiel prophesied would happen Mm -hmm. in the last days. It's all unfolding, Jimmy, and we can be glad that God's in charge, because on the ground it looks pretty bad, but from the air where (laughs) he is, he knows he's in control. Yes, sir. You're absolutely right. David Dolan, thank you, brother. Thank you for being with us on the program today. I'll pass on your well wishes to my father, and I'm sure we'll have another conversation down the road. We will, and I'll say God bless to both of the Jimmies. Amen. Folks, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Winky Madad uh, in the center part of Israel in Shiloh, right here on Prophecy Today. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. This is Jimmy DeYoung Jr. As I said earlier, that dad is recovering. He's in the hospital. He's doing well. Uh, We pass on all the well wishes from uh, folks that listen to our uh, internet radio, to our our weekend radio programs, from our social media. So we thank you so much, everyone, for continuing to pray for him. And one of his favorite men, one that he loves to talk to, (laughs) you can always tell, uh, he always says, you know, we're going to go to Shiloh, to the center part of Israel, and we're going to talk to Winky Madad. Winky, it's great to be with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for again having me on, and of course, my best wishes for a speedy recovery to your dad. Winky, you know, working behind the scenes all these years and, and producing the program and realizing, you know, not only doing television with you in in Israel and Shiloh, uh, I've been in your home. Uh, I know Dad has. Uh, you're a true friend of our family, not just a broadcast partner, but a friend of our family. I was thinking about, uh, ask, and I've asked the others, do you remember the first time that you met my father? Uh, it was probably, I think, on an election night at uh, Binyanei Hauma, the convention center there at the entrance of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I think that was it. It's quite possible that Morty Delinsky introduced yes. us. Yes. Maybe before 
which means that I'm a lot older than I would like to be, <laughs> because that goes back a couple of decades, if not more. And we've been all over the place, as you mentioned, all over Jerusalem. Hotel rooms, I think we even did once a show. Uh, I think we even had to undo some uh, lighting, ele- electrical uh, wiring there in order to get hooked up or something like that. We've been through some weird experiences, and of course... You guys have been out here at Shiloh at the Tell, and as you said, at my home. So, yes. yeah, well, I'm one of the more veteran people around. Yes, you are. That would have been back in the 80s, and that's when uh, Morty Delensky, former government press office head under Menachem Begin, and yeah, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. During that uh, election year that we broadcast from Jerusalem, all the way back to New York City. At that time, late-breaking news in New York City, of course, that uh, has a population of 6 million-plus Jews in New York City, so that was quite listened to. Well, it's great to have you with us today, and one of the issues that has, I know that we've talked about it before, but the issue of the housing and the the homes that are in Sheikh Jarrah being evacuated, and now Israel is asking the United States to get involved with this situation. First, tell us about the history of that, and then what it means for the United States to be involved in this. Well, Jimmy, we're talking about, to remind our our, our visitors, listening in on us, of course, that we're talking about the 1870s, when Jerusalem was just beginning to grow outside the old city, and there is a holy site of Simon the the Righteous One. He appears in the Ethics of the Fathers and other places in the Talmud. And he had a cave where his burial grounds were, and Jews would go there and visit. And eventually they bought some property before 1880. And eventually a whole neighborhood, not only one but two, grew up around that area. And so... That was a Jewish neighborhood until 1948. Okay, Mm. we're talking about, what, 60, 70 years. And along comes the 1948 war, and Jews were ethnically cleansed from the area. They had to flee. By January of 48, there were no Jews left in what we basically call today East Jerusalem. And as a result of the war... Their property was taken over by Jordan and given to other Arabs who had to move also. Mm -hmm. And after 67, Jerusalem became united, Israeli capital all over, and then people said, well, what about our property? And it turned out that these few Arab residents were living in their either homes or homes built with them on Jewish land, and they were asked to leave, and they fought it in a legal battle, and they lost. They're not being kicked out. They were even several years ago given the choice to pay rent, which they never did. And so that's where we are today. So all these cries of evictions, of forced uh, deportation, but I don't know what all sorts of terms that they're using, is simply not true. They never owned the land. Uh, they went through a long 15-year court process. And everything legally is on the side of the Jewish property owners. What's interesting about this whole thing now is that the United States is being asked to come in and help resolve this situation. Well, the problem here is 
uh, is that several of them wanted to resolve the problem and, and, and get better conditions years ago, but the uh, Palestinian Authority was forcing them to go through this because, for them, this was a propaganda tool. I mean, this was, you know, poor Arabs being kicked out of their homes, and no one was paying attention to the details, which I just told you. Uh, and so it's, it's great for, for bashing Israel as, as one of the more popular sports around today in politics. It's become like an ideological battle, and the fear is on Israel's side that they will not want to pay rent. The, the whole thing says, okay, you know, we'll leave you here for a couple more years. All you have to do is pay rent. And, and they don't want to pay rent because that would be recognizing the total nonsensical basis for their legal uh, 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 obligations in court. Yep. Because they would agree that actually the Jews own the property in the first place. <laughs> and pressure is being put on Israel also at this point to open the consulate for the Palestinians in Jerusalem. That's uh, looks like the United States is getting involved uh, and telling Jerusalem exactly what they should be doing. This is an unfortunate development, uh, I, I would not hesitate to say. Uh, President Trump did away with the consulate with David Freeman as the ambassador in Jerusalem. If the United States wants to set up a consulate for the Arabs resident in that area, why not do it in Ramallah? Uh, putting it in Jerusalem is already taking advantage of the fact that they seem to be supporting the Arab line, that Jerusalem can be divided again. There's no reason for a consulate or an additional consulate, a diplomatic legation, in Jerusalem if we already have the embassy there. You want to put a consulate, uh, do it. Uh, I mean, look, for example, in the United States, Israel's embassy is where? It's in Washington. They have a consulate in L.A., in Atlanta, I think in Chicago, and for sure they have one in, uh, in New York City. There's no need for a consulate. It gives the Arabs a little bit too, mu too much confidence that America is behind them all the way, and if, in a practical sense, there's no real reason for it. You know, there's a theme that, as we're asking these questions today, Winky, about the United States' involvement during the uh, Obama administration. We do know that uh, President Obama, through the State Department and watching what was going on, any building that was going on that was uh, outside the framework, our resources of the United States government was used to indicate to Jerusalem that they should not build here or they should not build this. And, and we talked about that on our trips to Israel and informing people. The Bahrainian official that was just in uh, Israel landed in, in establishing a relationship with Israel. Uh, he was slamming the Obama policy in the Middle East as it has uh, made things much difficult to deal with. What's your thoughts on that? Well, Basically, of course, he's correct. Just looking back, I mean, we're not in the midst of the Obama administration anymore. Is the Middle East calmer, more democratic, less violent, with less tensions than it was when he was president? No. Besides the whole Iranian nuclear business, which I think is, again, going in the wrong direction, with the lessening of sanctions and the inability to properly negotiate, one of the things that I've been saying over the years on your program has been that 
Iran is not just a problem with Israel, which deserves 100% support from the United States, of course, against Iran, but it's been fomenting terror throughout the Middle East. It's now getting involved in Afghanistan by supporting the Shiites there in Afghanistan. Iraq is once again being pushed by Iranian forces. And we mentioned Bahrain. Well, they've got their own Shiite minority. And just like in Yemen, uh, Iran is supporting uh, subversive activity against the government, terror, violence, killing, and they're doing it all over the place, which makes security not only for the region. They've been trying to hijack and shoot. It's not just us which is enough, I think. But a lot of other countries are being affected by Iran and Obama giving in to them, originally allowing Egypt to get out of control before Sisi had to come back and, and, and put a hard line on. Libya, I don't think the Obama administration understood what's happening in the Middle East, and I fear that the Biden administration, in taking back a lot of the advisors of Obama, might get wound up again in, in a negative uh, development here. It's uh, a case can be made that uh, President Biden is muddling things even worse in the Middle East. Last thing I want to talk with you about, we're always amazed at your knowledge on the Temple Mount, uh, the former temple, the practice of what's being done today as far as rebuilding. Just recently, a story came out that I sent to you about uh, the Levites singing the Song of Ascents on the Temple Mount. That, is that a premonition of things to come? Jimmy, we know that we try our best under all the restrictions, first of all, to gain entrance, which is not always uh, open to us, to expand the times that we're allowed to be there. For example, okay, it's closed on Friday because it's the Muslim holy day. Why does it have to be closed on Saturday, our Sabbath? So we, we move continuously to, as I explained, to raise consciousness about the temple, about its importance, and about all the details going into it, including, if possible, to try to revive Levitical, I'm, I'm making up a word maybe for you on the program, Levitical singing or prayer or learning sessions, mm -hmm. or even just getting to know the archaeology and the history of the site, uh, to study the sacrificial details that were in the temple at the time, it's not going to happen overnight, and, and, and we are preparing the ground for it. It's going to be a mighty event. It's one of the closest things in Judaism, anyway. We believe that we get to God through the temple and His divine presence. And so it's a long process of getting to know, and, and, and if someone can unfortunately have to sneak up and in a corner sing or, or women will outside prepare some of the uh, curtains and, and try to see what can be done. All this is directed in a positive way in order to get Jewish people and their friends from among the nations to realize what the temple is all about, and hopefully at a political opportune time, something good will happen. It's an exciting time to be alive, to be watching these things as they are taking place. 
And hopefully in the, in the days to come, we'll all be able to, as the Christians and, and people from around the world would like to go back to Jerusalem to see what's being done on a daily basis there in the city of Jerusalem and throughout the state of Israel. Winky Madad, thank you so much. Uh, I will pass on uh, your thoughts and your prayers and your blessings on my father. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Jimmy, thank you very much again for having me on the program. And regards to all the family, your father, and everybody who's listening in on the program. Winky Medad, a great friend of my father, a great story about how they first met at the election. Even uh, that was way back in the early 80s, and uh, that's when Dad met Winky, and, and that was a great story. Our man that we go to on the European Union, and the reason we go to John Rood is because we feel that the European Union is at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. And John, it's great to have you with us here today. Thank you. Great to be with you always. You know, John, one of the things that I've been doing on a program today is asking people about the first time that they met my father. Do you have a story that you could tell us about the first time you met my father? Absolutely. I remember quite vividly it was at a pre-trib study group conference in Dallas, and uh, it's nearly an invitation-only type setting mm -hmm. of prophecy experts and wide range of talents and so forth and scholarly papers that are presented, and that's sponsored by Tim LaHaye. And so I met your father there for the first time, and he was actually planning uh, I think it was like a seven or ten city conference a tour on prophecy, and somebody uh, apparently near the last minute was not able to make it. And so, so he asked, he asked me, "Are you able to fill in on that?" <laughs> I said, "Well, I said, well, certainly. That sounded really exciting." And this is this is the line that he said, "You know, now this teaching, this is like prophecy squared." <laughs> mm. <laughs> Something to really give an indication that this was on a uh, very high level. Very. So uh, I love the challenge on that. That's how we met. Uh, excellent. I love that story. Thank you, John. John, talking about the European Union, uh, one of the stories that I've been focusing, I focus with Ken Timmerman, and one that as I put up the top 10 news stories each day uh, on our website, I've been focusing on the fallout in Afghanistan, and, and uh, uh, there's a story that uh, appeared about the millions, possibly three million migrants trying to reach and get into Europe. What, what do you know about this? Well, you know, the European migrant crisis kind of culminated in 2015, and 1.2 million people arrived on the continent at that time which was enough for a real major crisis. And uh, uh, many of the faces of European cities have been completely changed. And there's quite a bit of tension around this as well. Europe is very welcoming. At the same time, uh, they can be taken advantage of. Now, the situation you've mentioned, uh, Afghanistan, the humanitarian aid work has actually come out in some sort of official standing to say they can assume up to 3 million Afghans will make their way to Europe in the, in the foreseeable future. So uh, just weighing that, we could see that that would be enough for a, another full-blown crisis, and preparation for such a thing uh, would be very difficult. The officials are saying, regardless of the scenario, it, it would be very bad. 
You know, John, as I look at this, one of the things that I see in all these countries, they're reshaping themselves and even the not only the political, but the religious aspect. I know one of our stories about anti-Semitism in Europe and how that is increasingly growing, even in the pro-interfaith uh, movements. Yes, uh, actually, uh, a leading story on that is concerning a Norwegian imam who is the head of a mosque, and he had led uh, interfaith uh, dialogues and discussions, as you said, uh, but then it was discovered how he had made uh, extremely anti-Semitic statements on Facebook that I don't even really want to uh, repeat. Mm. And uh, he was banned by an international Muslim organization, and it was interesting. He tried to form an apology, but he said, I should have directed this at the regime and not against a group of people, the Jews. And so he didn't even withdraw the remarks, and it's just deferred them to another group. But the thing to take away here is that these are just not isolated events and isolated statements. Uh, they're very calculated, and they're geared towards uh, increasing radicalization. That is for sure. And you see the, 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 really the lay of the land is changing right before our very eyes with these 3 million migrants that are coming in from Afghanistan and uh, migrants coming across the, the, the channels to get into Europe. And we see it changing, churches diminishing, going away, and uh, just political and religious ideology is changing right before our very eyes. One last uh, focus that we have on the European Union, and I know that we've covered this before, but l recently the the COVID uh, passport situation, uh, European mass protests against COVID-19 vaccine passports. Uh, is this leading to something much bigger? Well, it's already very, very big, and, the, you know, the European typical reaction is much more geared towards these massive protests than in the United States. The numbers are just astounding. In France, there were, uh, well, 870,000 people protesting on one day across France. Mm. And uh, the French President Macron has come out and says, you know, I'm a victim of your freedom, and there's a lot of uh, labeling being done. But uh, actually here it appears that the people are not as so much anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine. They're free choice. And they understand. They live in Europe. And they see that the European Union, what they are progressively uh, capable of. They understand that. And so the vaccine passport could be a platform that would be used to limit future freedoms. It's absolutely possible. And we've always said that more than likely this is going to lead to a identity system that could be used, and this is the precursor for setting up uh, possibly the mark of the beast, and that takes place during the tribulation period. John, it's so important that we focus on the European Union. I know that uh, as uh, we've been doing this over the years, uh, we need to keep our eyes on what's taking place in the, the European Union and the countries surrounding it and all that is taking place. Thank you, John, for taking the time to be with us today. And uh, thank you again. And we'll we'll have future conversations down the road. Well, thank you, Jimmy. And it's uh, very important to identify the trends. And uh, that's exactly what we see. Thank you. Thank you, John, for that great report. 
reason that we focus on the European Union is because we believe that that is the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. Well, I got a call from Brandon uh, this last week. Brandon House, one of Dad's closest friends uh, over the years, been in conferences. Brandon has had Dad in conferences, and uh, folks that are following longtime listeners of the program know that Brandon's been on our program. Dad's been on Brandon's program. He truly is a friend of the family. Brandon House, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And your dad has been on my broadcast every Friday for over 10 years, since Mm. uh, 2011. Uh, I called him the other day and I said, uh, you want to come on the show? (laughs) That was for this last Friday. You know, I'd really like to. Thank you for asking me, but I I just don't feel up to it. And when he said that, I knew, boy, he is not feeling well. He's not because feeling well. He just never would say that. So we're very concerned about him, but we also know that uh, he's making progress, and we're thankful for that. And we're just very eager for him to heal and to take the time that he needs to get his strength back and, and get home and get back to being on radio. And, and with radio and all that's available today, you know, his message can still go out. That's a beautiful thing about radio. Amen. That's so true, Brandon. Thank you. I certainly will pass on your well wishes to him. Brandon, I was uh, alerted by you, and I, I've seen uh, the cyber symposium put on by uh, the owner and uh, founder of My Pillow, Mike Lindell. Brandon was there. He's uh, very involved with Mike. And uh, it was all about a conference that was put together to really to reunite Americans and to uh, to really to help prepare people to do battle against uh, really an insurrection that's coming in. But there have been a lot of things that took place at this conference. Can you fill us in and update us? Yes, I can. It's, the press has really been tough. And what do you... I guess you don't expect any less, right? A uh, lot of misinformation, a uh, lot of lies, outright lies. A lot of people, some of the press quoting uh, people from just overhearing conversations were told. I'll give you one example. Business Insider said that Mike Lindell rushed off stage after he got news that the Dominion lawsuit against him would go forward, and it showed uh, you know, a, a small Twitter mm-hmm. clip of him walking off stage while someone else was speaking. That's not what happened. I actually am the one that called him off stage at that point to give him some information related to uh, bad actors that had infiltrated the conference that I discovered in, in covering the conference and doing some reporting behind the scenes. That article headline by Business Insider is a perfect example of the kind of bold-faced lies that came out of there. And I could give other examples, but the media has been really tough um, in, in, in trying to discredit that rally. We had legislators line up from all over the country. And I think we had 50 states represented. And we had legislators line up at the end of the conference last night, and they, get, they said who they were, where they were from, mm. you know, putting themselves on camera, their name. They weren't embarrassed. And they talked about what it meant. And many of them are going back to demand audits. They're working to start coalitions with states working together to demand audits. So if this was the flop that the liberal media is trying to make it out to be, the big nothing burger, why were these legislators, after three days, willing to line up across the room, put their name and face on camera, mm-hmm. and they, they wouldn't. They would have been embarrassed. They would have, they would have stayed the three days. They, they would, would have, have left. left. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they, we saw the results just from the personal testimonies on camera going over uh, national television with One American News. That we, and we were the company producing this. So 
just the legislature's own testimony shows the lies of the media. Folks, you can go to worldviewreport.com uh, to catch up on a lot of the. That's a Brandon site that he puts up stories. He's uh, got the latest on there from not only the cyber symposium. Hey, uh, America's in trouble. What can we do as Christians? So one of the biggest things is to get our pastors to start speaking out and realize this is not political. But if you lose the right to vote for the candidate you want, they're going to continue to put in people that will put in hate crime legislation that will shackle your pulpit, destroy Christian radio, and continue to use uh, health crises to shut down our churches, tell us when we can and cannot meet. Uh, we're now moving toward vaccine passports in New, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. It's not the mark of the beast. It's certainly laying the foundation. Exactly. Um, you know, we're seeing with your dad, COVID is serious. No one's saying it's not. But we cannot let a health crisis roll us into tyranny. And they want to shut down free radio, First Amendment rights of religion and free speech. And pastors better speak up because we lose our economic freedom. We're going to lose our political freedom. And then you can better believe we're going to lose our religious freedom. Brandon, thank you so much for what you're doing. I will pass this on to my father and folks. Please do. If you uh, if you want more information on what Brandon's doing, the, and I know that a lot of our our followers follow Brandon and your website, please go there, see what you can do to get involved and how you can help Brandon. Uh, all of these folks that are trying to save uh, our great American nation that has been so involved in spreading the gospel around the world, and it very well might come to an end. But we're hoping that we can continue to do what we are supposed to do as believers and that we'll continue on as a great nation. Thank you, Brandon, for all that you do and, and for your relationship with my father. Well, thank you, Jimmy. Thank you for holding down the fort in his absence. And we're praying for him and look forward to his being back on the air. Folks, we're going to have to take a break. We're going to be right back after the news with David James. We'll be here right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you were here for the first hour and you've stuck around for the second half hour, we have Dave James coming up. Dave is going to talk with us about the situation in Hungary. If you watched the Fox News Network this last week, Tucker Carlson was in Hungary. Hungary is in a position of making a decision that really goes against not only the European Union, but against the world. Dave James will come in the next segment, and he'll talk to us about that. You're probably wondering why Jimmy DeYoung Jr. is on the program today. Well, if, if you weren't here, let me give you an update. My father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who's been doing this program every week for 21 years, has contracted COVID. Yes, um, he, my mother, one of our assistants, uh, his daughter, Jody. Yes, they all contracted COVID, and dad, uh, covid attacked his lungs, and he's in the hospital in an intensive care unit. We do know it's going to be a long process, probably uh, two or three weeks, maybe even longer. We ask for your prayers. We ask uh, for God's guidance and wisdom in this process, and that's what we're looking for. And I'm sure Dad uh, will take all of your prayers and your well-wishing, and we thank you so much for following our ministry for so many years, and just keep him in prayer. We thank you again from the Ministry at Prophecy Today. 
It's that time of the week where we get together and where we open God's Word. We take a look at a uh, an issue that is affecting or could affect the body of Christ. And as always, we go to Dave James. And Dave, uh, it's great to have you on our program again. You know, I was just doing the math, Dave. Over 21 years, 52 weeks a year, uh, that's about 1,090 programs that Dad has done. And I'm pretty sure you have probably been on... Uh, More than half of those. Well, I've been on quite a few. Uh, He and I started doing their weekly segment over seven years ago, so there's we've done quite a few. Yes. Dave, I've asked everybody how they met Dad, and how did you meet Dad? I don't know that we actually met for the first time that I was with your dad. I was a student. My wife and I were students at the Word of Life Bible Institute in New York, and Jack Wurtson, the founder of Word of Life, had a, a get-together for the married students at his place. Your dad brought a devotion for that get-together, and so that would have been in the late 80s. But then uh, your dad uh, was uh, one of our first guest teachers to come to mm-hmm. Hungary to teach in the Bible Institute there. And so I've worked closely with your dad uh, to different degrees since uh, 1994. Yeah, I remember, uh, in fact, uh, your ministry that you do today started over a trip. I believe it was to one of the foreign countries outside of Hungary where you guys started. Serbia. Serbia to start that trip. Well, as you and dad normally do on the program, I wanted to start our discussion with a question from a listener. And the one that we've chosen concerns giving to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem as a way to support Israel. Well, I thought it was a great question, Jimmy, and I'm guessing a number of our listeners have wondered something similar, and this is what he wrote. I'm interested in giving to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Is that a legitimate organization to give to? I want to bless Israel in any way I can. So I've connected personally with this listener before, and so I replied personally by email, but I also included you, Jimmy, so you could weigh in as well, uh, which was good. I'm glad that you, you did. So on the one hand, the Temple Institute is keeping the idea alive that there was, in fact, a temple standing on the mm-hmm. traditional Temple Mount, because the Islamic world denies it. And there's even a fairly strong movement among some evangelicals to say that it was down in the city of David, which which I don't agree with at all. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the Temple Mount faithful and the Temple Institute are unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus as the Son of God, and they're dedicated to the rebuilding of the temple so that Messiah can come the first time. And in your email response, Jimmy, I like that you reminded him that the next temple will be built during the Tribulation, and that temple is where the Antichrist will declare himself to be God and receive worship from all on the earth who do not trust in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. And so there are ways to stand with Israel, but I'm not sure helping to build the third temple is the best one. And I think you and I both agree that we should focus on prayer and evangelism and discipleship of the Jewish people. Yes, sir. The best way to bless a Jew today is to tell them that their Messiah, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for their sins. Very good, David. Excellent answer, and it's very important as people are looking, and there are a lot of organizations that want to bless the Jew, but the best way to bless them is through salvation. Well, I've been following as I develop. Each day I do the top 10 news stories for our ministry and for Dad and our radio program, and that's where all the issues come from that we that we take a look at. I've been following developments in Hungary. 
because I was there for a couple of years doing soccer camps and the camps and teaching at the Bible Institute, but I knew that you uh, have a very good uh, understanding of Hungary and posting stories on the Prophecy Today website related to the current issue. So I thought it would be interesting to discuss some of the things with you, especially since you and your family were missionaries there for many years. Well, Jimmy, after living there for 16 years, Hungary is certainly like a second home, and we made the decision to go behind the Iron Curtain into Central Europe as missionaries with Word of Life in the fall of 1989. Just two weeks later, the Berlin Wall fell, and it was amazing. Uh, We arrived in Hungary in 1992 with our three-year-old son and our one-year-old daughter, and while the last Soviet troops had left the previous year, it still felt very much like a communist country and did for several years. And we joined a small team of American missionaries and Hungarian staff who were transforming, literally transforming a former royal property that had been confiscated by the communists into one of Word of Life's major ministry centers in Europe. And our specific role was to establish the Word of Life Hungry Bible Institute, uh, which I've already mentioned, and we were able to open that in 1994 with 22 students just 20 months after we arrived in the country. And over the last 26 years, that school has trained students from over 50 different countries around the world, and you've taught there a number of times, and and your dad at one point was tied for the most hours taught by any guest (laughs) teacher there. So his ministry there has been extensive, and uh, and our son is currently a missionary there with Word of Life and is married to a Hungarian who was saved as a teenager in the summer camp, and they have four of our six grandkids there. Well, no doubt you have an understanding of the Hungarian people and the country and and the government. What can you tell us about the religious makeup of Hungary and how much of an impact did coming out from under communism have on reaching Hungarians with the gospel? Well, it's interesting, Jimmy, but the estimated numbers for Hungary's religious profile are literally all over the map, depending on which source you look at. And But before I get to that, let me let me back up a bit with some historical background. The uh, seven original Hungarian tribes arrived in the Carpathian Basin in the 800s, possibly from Central Asia, and they held animistic pagan beliefs. And in 1000 AD, Hungary's first king was crowned by the Pope at the time and brought Roman Catholicism into the country. Country, which resulted in the majority of the country becoming Catholic until the Reformation in the 16th century. And an initial result of the Reformation was that Hungary became mostly Calvinist by the end of the 1500s. But then with the Counter-Reformation coming out of the Council of Trent, uh, much of Hungary was taken back by the Catholic Church, sometimes by force. Now, of Hungary's 10 million people today, 50 to 60 percent identify as Roman Catholic, 15 to 20 percent as Reformed, less than 5% Lutheran, and there are maybe 15 to 20,000 Baptists in the country, and I would say less than 5,000 Brethren, who would be closest to us probably most consistently doctrinally. However, even though the country is nominally Christian, a 2014 survey indicated that close to 60% of Hungarians consider religion as unimportant in their daily lives, and only 10 to 15% attend church regularly. So Hungary is a very difficult mission field, and I'm guessing that well under 5% of the population is made up of born-again believers, with more atheists now uh, than there were under communism, especially for those who are under 50 years old. Well, I want to get to some of the specific things uh, where Hungary is standing independently of Europe 
and even the world, and, and not only about the the Hungarian history and how that plays into their stand, but what they are taking a stand on. Well, yeah, there are several things I would say that the Hungarian worldview has definitely been shaped by its history. And even going back to the Hungarian roots, I mentioned the nomadic horsemen from Central Asia. They were a fiercely independent people. In 1000 AD, as I mentioned, Roman Catholicism was brought in and ended up taking over the country religiously, and there was a widespread and sometimes violent uprising and rebellion against that by those who were still holding to pagan beliefs. And in the 1200s, Hungary was overrun by the Mongols. They pushed as they pushed toward Western Europe. In the 15 and 1600s, the Ottoman Empire ruled Hungary for 150 years until they were eventually pushed back by the Austrian Habsburgs, who then dominated Hungary until World War I. And then as a German ally, Hungary was on the wrong side of World War I, and one result was that Hungary lost two-thirds of its land area in uh, 1917 or 18, I believe it was. Then uh, with World War II, Hungary once again aligned with Germany, but realized too late that this was a bad idea, and so it ended up becoming an occupied country when they tried to back out. And it was, quote-unquote, liberated by the Soviet Army near the end of the war and ended up being a Soviet satellite as a result of the talks at Yalta uh, between FDR, Churchill, and Stalin. And then there was the revolution attempt against the Soviets in 1956, which was mercilessly crushed. But then Hungary became a major player in the fall of communism in 1989 and 1990. would try to be independent. So let's talk about some of the cultural decisions and policy decisions that Hungary has taken that has put it at odds with the rest of Europe. Well, Tucker Carlson on Fox News did his evening program from Hungary all last week, and one of the things he highlighted was the fence on Hungary's southern border, and that was put in place by the Hungarian government to protect the country from an influx of refugees streaming into Europe from Islamic countries. And as far as I know, only Hungary and Poland have taken such a hard stance against illegal immigration, and I would say there's no question it has helped protect Hungary from the Islamization that's taking place in much of Western Europe. And Hungary has also taken a strong stand against what I call the LGBT agenda. Uh, For example, in July, a law came into force that restricts the depiction of homosexuality and sex reassignment to children in schools. And, Jimmy, as you would expect, the law has drawn intense opposition from other countries in the European Union. It's become sort of a battleground. And several European newspapers recently refused to run an ad that was signed by the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, which effectively denounced the European Empire, accusing Brussels of building a super state. And that ad also called for the strengthening of national parliaments and standing against closer European integration. Well, let's wrap up today's conversation by briefly talking about the prime minister, who has a lot of critics, (laughs) to say the least. Would you say that he is a strong defender of conservative Christian values? Well, Jimmy, since we haven't lived in Hungary for a while now, I probably don't have the complete picture. I do know that Viktor Orban is regularly accused of being an authoritarian autocrat who's determined to kill democracy in Hungary. Uh, And there's little doubt that he's done a number of things that rightly raise eyebrows uh, in relation to politics, business, and the media. But 
I would also say that his harshest critics are the same ones who would likely call you and me and many of our listeners right-wing, narrow-minded, mm. and bigoted nut jobs. to be honest. <laughs> uh, and when Orban started in politics as an anti-communist activist in the 1980s, it seems that he was an atheist, but there may be reason to believe he became a born-again believer in the 1990s. A couple of years ago, the Guardian newspaper ran an article in which it was reported that uh, barely a month goes by without Orban hosting a delegation of Christian leaders from somewhere in the world. And in 2019, the American Conservative website ran an article written by a journalist who had been at a conference for Christian communicators in Budapest. And this is what he said in the article. One can certainly take issue with Orban's illiberal methods of pursuing his policy goals, and the prime minister does not deny that he is an illiberal Democrat, but the man understands his small country to be in a fight for national survival against globalist, anti-Christian, multiculturalism coming from Brussels and other Western capitals. How exactly is he wrong? Folks, we need to keep an eye on Hungary and Poland, two nations that really could bring down the European Union by, uh, again, maybe leaving the European Union. Uh, but they are included in that revived Roman Empire, so we'll keep an eye on this. And I think it's interesting that we see a country that takes a stand and is taking a stand against worldwide opinion. David, thank you so much for being with us today. I'll pass on your well wishes to my father. Thank you. Um, in, in your ministry. Thank you again for being a part of our ministry for many years. And we look forward to having another conversation with you again next week. I'll look forward to it, Jimmy. Uh, please greet your mom and dad. For me. I will do that. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. Uh, I'll take a look at the book that's coming up right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. 
Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And again, thank you so very much for joining us today. At this time of the program, we take a look at the book. That's what Dad says. It's time for me now to take a look at the book. Why do we take a look at the book? When we take a look at the book, we are using God's Word to help us to understand the events, current events, as they are happening in our world today. It's actually a worldview, and you must have a biblical worldview. If you're going to understand, and remember, a worldview is how you view what's taking place in the world. And there are many different ways in our world today as to the way that people examine and see the world and get along in the world. That's their worldview. If you use the Bible, you have a biblical worldview. And if you use all of the Bible, as Paul wrote to Timothy, all of Scripture is given for uh, doctrine, for reproof, for righteous living, everything. And over one-third of God's Word is prophetic in nature, pertaining to His first coming and His second coming. So in order to have a proper world view, a proper biblical worldview, you have to have a proper prophetic biblical worldview. And that's why we study God's Word. And this is the time that we take, that we will take a look as we rehearse some of the things that our broadcast partners have said. You can go back, you could go to our website, prophecytoday.com. If you missed any of the interviews, what was said, again, very pertinent information. I choose these stories. Um, uh, I did today. My father usually chooses the stories. I choose the top 10 stories each and every day. Let me remind you how I choose those top 10 stories because I have an understanding in the future of what's going to take place from the very next event, which is the rapture of the church, then that seven-year period of time, the tribulation period, and then the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So as I look at events that are taking place in the world, I use that framework. And there are many passages that I'm looking at that help me to choose those stories. And everything that is being done is all prophecy that is yet to take place. There are no prophecies left to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church takes place. But as you listen to our broadcast partners, and again, you can go and listen to them, and you can tell a friend, as Dad says, you can tell a friend to listen to our interviews if you happen to miss any of them. We take a look and we listen to what these men said. And I, I think about what Ken Timmerman said. Ken talked about Iran and Russia on the border coming up against Afghanistan. When you look at these nations, the nations that are going to align against Israel, these major players, Iran, Afghanistan, Russia, they're all mentioned in Ezekiel 38, Daniel 11, or Psalm 83. Those alignment of nations will come together as they come against Israel. When we talked to Dave Dolan, Dave Dolan talked about the attack on the border of Israel from Lebanon using uh, Hezbollah and Hamas firing rockets into Israel. Folks, I mean, we're watching again all these nations as they line up. They're getting ready. Iran's using these proxy uh, organizations to do their dirty work, to fire the rockets, but they're all coming around. And as Dave said, 350 million Muslims surrounding the little tiny nation of Israel. Uh, you can't help again but to see how God is working. And the one thing that brought to my mind, not only with Dave Dolan, but Wiki Bidad, 
is that the United States is in control or trying to control the Israeli government in telling them to make decisions about their Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem, about the building of homes in Judea and Samaria. You know, there's a phrase that we use as we study the book of Daniel, the times of the Gentiles. Jesus referred to it in Luke chapter 21. The times of the Gentiles is any time that the Gentile world is in control of the city of Jerusalem or the Jewish people. Right now, we're in the times of the Gentiles, and that will be brought to an end at the end of that seven-year period of time. And we heard Winky Madad talk about the songs of ascension or the songs of ascent from the book of Psalms. The Levites, as they recited these, as a matter of fact, when the Jewish people three times a year would go to the city of Jerusalem as they would ascend, they would make Aliyah, they would recite these prayers. And then when they would get to the temple, they would climb the stairs reciting these prayers. Again, seeing what's taking place behind the scenes as we are getting closer and closer to seeing a temple rebuilt, but yet that temple's not rebuilt until after the rapture of the church takes place. John Rood talked about what's taking place, and I think it's very important, as, again, as we watch the migrants from Afghanistan, three million coming across, escaping from the Taliban, as they are coming into wanting to get away from what's happening in the nation of Afghanistan. Yes, we're seeing an influx, and that is changing the picture, really, of what's taking place in Europe. This revived Roman Empire, this European Union, will it withstand all of this? As we talked with Brandon, will the United States withstand the attack in the future? The United States, a nation, a great nation that at one point in time sent out more missionaries, 80% of the world's missionaries to the world. Now today, we're only sending out 20% and everything is changing you know, the United States might not be a nation within the next couple of years. There have been bigger empires that have fallen. Dave James talked about one tiny nation, or actually two, Hungary and Poland, that are withstanding and standing up against the, the really the world as they are making decisions and and deciding to go one way. Wouldn't it be great if we had nations that still would stand up today? But we do have a group of people that can do that. And that is Bible-believing Christians that using the Word of God, understanding the times in which they're living, taking that example from Daniel as he studied the Word of God and understood the times in which he was living, he was able to set himself apart, to dedicate himself, to humble himself before the Lord, and to call upon his name to be able to serve and to understand the world in which he was living. You know, having that next event being the rapture of the church helps us to live a pure, productive life. And I hope that that's what you've understood when we take a look at the book, that it's helping you to understand this world in which we're living in. The rapture could even happen today before this program is finished. My prayer for all of you to be prepared, to be ready, and to be pure. The rapture could happen at any moment. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.